Hello and welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the sanctuary for independent media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people known today as the Stockbridge Muncie community. I'm Blaze Bryant. And I'm Bria Barthel. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with Alexis Goldsmith of Beyond Plastics talking with Mark Dunley about pending legislation related to reducing plastic consumption. Then Moses Nagel brings us an update on Jordan Young, who faces a prison sentence while still recuperating from being shot by Albany police. Later on, Mark Dunley is back to talk with Post and Kill Town Board member Eric Wallaber about recent state funding of $3.3 million for providing safe drinking water after PFOA contamination was found in town water supplies. After that, Sina Bazilla Hickey talks with an organizer and vendors at the Troy Farmers Market about their transition from an outside venue to inside the Triatrium. And finally, Hugh Johnson joins us for a look at this cold weather. But first, here are some headlines. Bria, thank you very much. The season's first snow. Yeah, that's arriving Tuesday. It's not expected to be anything major. News Channel 13 is calling it an alert day, which means the Wednesday morning commute could be a little tricky. We will get the latest with retired National Weather Service meteorologist Hugh Johnson when he joins us in about 45 minutes from now. Bria? Albany police are searching for the person who stole a car with two children inside, ages three and eight. According to police, the mother left the car running near the intersection of Central Avenue and Robbins Street. The suspect let the kids out a couple of blocks away at Central and Lexington. The mother, whose name has not been made public, is charged with endangering the welfare of a child and cited for leaving a vehicle running while unattended. An Albany murder trial resumes this week. Darius Coakley is accused of stabbing another man to death in 2020. Prosecutors say Coakley stabbed Skeen in a fight on Madison Avenue near New Scotland Avenue. The grandmother of the victim was the first to testify last Wednesday. Coakley has pled not guilty to second-degree murder charges. New York State Attorney General Letitia James and Department of Environmental Conservation Commissioner Basil Sagos filed a request in state Supreme Court asking the court to monitor or stop operations at Norlite during a lawsuit filed last month. James and Sagos want the hose-based plant that burns hazardous waste to implement a program monitoring emission levels and then to publicly report the results. If emission levels get too high, the Attorney General and DEC want Norlite to shut down and hire independent engineers to fix the problem. And that's it for headlines. You're listening to Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute your time, talents, or money, go to mediasanctuary.org, email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org, or call us 518-272-2390. Leading off, Alexis Goldsmith of Beyond Plastics, a frequent correspondent on our show, talks with Mark Dunley about two key legislative issues in 2023, opposing the chemical recycling 
or burning of plastics and pushing for strong extended um, producer responsibility laws. Here's their conversation. We're joined by Alexis Goldsmith, who is a, a national organizer with uh, Beyond Plastics, a group that works to stop the single-use plastics and other um, efforts to move the fossil fuel industry heavily more into to plastics. I should mention that my wife uh, has been involved in establishing uh, the group uh, Beyond Plastic. Uh, Alexis is kind enough actually to be uh, giving a little talk tonight at uh, an eco-action tonight being Monday night. Uh, with Eco Action, uh, you can check out our webpage at at 9 p.m. Eco Act of the Green Party of the United States. But Alexis, I, I know you talk a lot about Beyond Plastics here at the uh, Media Sanctuary, but you want to just give people a brief introduction and then what? Let's talk about what are some of the key, you know, legislative issues uh, nationally this year or next year coming up in plastic. Understand both chemical recycling and extended producer responsibilities on the short agenda. Yes, thank you, Mark. Um, so for Beyond Plastics, I do grassroots organizing. So I'm working with volunteers across the country and um, affiliated organizations are um, organizations that are members of the Break Free from Plastic Pollution Coalition to basically pass laws to ban single-use plastics and to promote reuse at a community level. So we're not looking, individual change is important, but we are more focused on systemic change and mobilizing the grassroots to promote systemic change. So nationally, um, where the action is happening on plastics is at the local and state level. Um, of course, there is the Break Free from Plastic Pollution Act at the federal level, which will be reintroduced in 2023. But where things are actually getting passed is in state legislatures and municipalities. And the two biggest issues that I'm working on going into 2023 are, as you said, chemical recycling, which is really just plastic burning. It is not recycling plastics into new plastics, and extended producer responsibility for packaging, which has the potential to dramatically reduce the amount of single-use pl plastic packaging that um, you get from your everyday, you know, grocery and shopping. Now, I understand the last couple of years there has been... Um some legislation introduced in, in New York State, uh, I think initially somewhat by uh, perhaps the governor, but certainly by uh, the chair of the Senate uh, Environmental Consumer, Todd Kaminsky, uh, pushed it really hard. Uh, Steve Englebright, uh, also uh, chair of the Assembly Environmental Committee, you know, then came in with more of a model uh, EPR bill, I believe, in consultation groups like uh, Beyond Plastics. But now both of those individuals, state senator leaving the Senate and uh, Stephen Gilbright lost his reelection. How, how do things look, you know, moving forward? And, and what are sort of the, you know, the flashpoints of disagreement between, you know, sort of like the more conservative environmental groups, the governor, and then the more progressive groups focusing on getting rid of single use plastics? Sure. So I think it's important to understand that New York has state bills 
both for chemical recycling and for extended producer responsibility for packaging. And we see these as diametrically opposed solutions to plastic pollution and also to the climate crisis and environmental justice communities. So the, um, as you said, the extended producer responsibility bill that Beyond Plastics is putting forward with our organizational allies would um, reduce the amount of single-use plastic that companies are allowed to use for their packaging. So major consumer brands like Coke, Nestle, Pepsi, Unilever, Procter and Gamble, Johnson and Johnson—all the all, these are um, the worst plastic polluters on a, in the in the world. This would, bill could potentially require them to reduce their packaging by fifty percent over two years in New York, or they cannot sell their products in New York State. So that's the extended producer responsibility bill. It also does a lot more. Um, to address plastics and improve actual real recycling, improve reuse and refill. Um, and we will be looking for a new sponsor for that bill because as you said, unfortunately, Representative Englebright, who was the sponsor in 2022, lost his reelection bid. Now the chemical recycling bill, it's called the advanced recycling bill. This is being put forward by um, Senator Mannion out of uh, Central New York and Who also uh, lost by the way. Well, he, his he's actually going into a recount. Uh -huh. um, we can't say for sure that he lost um, just yet. And um, the assembly sponsor is Alicia Hindman. Um, now, <clears throat> this bill basically promotes plastic burning, and that is the flashpoint between the conservative environmental groups or and the more progressive groups is what to do about plastics. So our view is we need to reduce plastic at the source. Plastics are made from fossil fuels. We need to stop extracting fossil fuels and turning them into single-use plastic packaging. Now, um, historically, states have favored plastic burning, um, either waste to energy or waste to fuel schemes to deal with the massive amounts of plastic waste that's being produced. And that is um, a strategy that pollutes the air, obviously, and also generates you know, massive amounts of toxic hazardous ash um, that also has to be landfilled. So we don't support plastic burning, and that is why we don't support chemical recycling, which is really not recycling again, it's plastic burning. So those are the two big bills we're looking at in New York State, the advanced recycling bill and um, extended producer responsibility for packaging. And, and you mentioned, uh, I believe Coke is one of the worst waste producers. Uh, I, I do understand actually people have been protesting. Uh, Coke, have been I guess, has been one of the corporate sponsors of the COP27 um, climate meeting taking place in Egypt. Can you quickly just re refresh people's memory? What, what's the connection between plastics and climate and the fossil fuel industry? Sure. Well, plastics are made from fossil fuels. Um, in the United States, they're mostly made from fracked gases. So this is a serious um, environmental justice issue because, as we know, fracking is poisoning people's water and air where the fracking is taking place. Um, and in the United States, plastics 
contribute the same emissions as 116 coal-fired power plants. So this is a massive source of greenhouse gas emissions um, that is not being examined to the extent that it needs to be to address climate change and environmental justice. And that's what we've been trying to um, incorporate into every bill that we work on is that we must reduce plastics to avert climate disaster. Now you mentioned uh, before we get on, there were a couple of events coming up you wanted to make sure people knew about? Yes, um, Beyond Plastics is having um, our end of year kind of fundraiser slash, um, it's gonna be a fun event, but we're uh, going to be joined by Mark Ruffalo on Sunday, December 11th. It's open to the public. There's a small ticket fee to join. Um, and I will be playing the fiddle and I know we'll be playing some videos of um, you know the things that we did this year. So join us, Beyond Plastics and Mark Ruffalo, Sunday, December 11th at 4 p.m. Um, it's a virtual event and you can go to beyondplastics.org to buy your ticket. And there's some other training coming up possibly? Oh yes, and we have our grassroots organizer training coming up. So we train people basically on how to pass laws to ban plastics. And um, that starts December 3rd. Um, it's also virtual. You can sign up at beyondplastics.org slash trainings. Well, thank you very much. We've been talking to Alexis uh, Goldsmith, Beyond Plastic. Um, Eco Action tonight, Monday night at uh, 9, having a webinar. You can check out our Facebook page. We'll have a recording later on. Uh, this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thanks to Mark and Alexis for this look at legislative issues related to plastics. Back to you, Blaze. Thank you, Bria. The Albany Center for Law and Justice is working to stop Jordan Young from facing a prison sentence they say may be fatal for the Albany native. He has not fully recovered from, or I'm sorry, after being shot by Albany police in January, a case that is under investigation by the Albany Community Police Review Board. Correspondent Moses Nagel has more. Details in the capital city. The man shot by an Albany police officer is now in the custody of the Albany County Sheriff's Department. After Jordan Young, the 33-year-old Albany resident who was shot by Albany police in January, was recently released from Albany Med. After over a dozen surgeries and continued poor health, he is nevertheless facing jail time for the incident. One of the organizations protesting his treatment and trying to keep him from further punishment is the Center for Law and Justice. Michelle Stroh, the center's policy director, told me how she got involved in the campaign. I got involved just based on working here at the center. Dr. Green, my boss, who is also the executive director here at the Center for Law and Justice, she's a longtime Albany-based civil rights activist, and she is very involved in advocating for people who have been shot by police especially, of course, black men, black women, um, people of color. I was on maternity leave when the incident happened. It happened not far from my house. And so I learned about it that way. And then when I got 
back to work um, after maternity leave, I kind of just jumped right in with helping to advocate for Jordan. Can you describe the circumstances around the shooting? Police were called to a home based on a home invasion is one account. And essentially they saw Jordan Young. Um, He's an Albany native. He's a black man. He was walking his dog. It was in January, January 24th, 2022. They essentially approached him and Jordan suffers from several mental health diagnoses and they just escalated the situation in my opinion. Um, And I believe from the body camera footage, which you can find pretty much anywhere online, it's my belief and and our position here at the center and as advocates for Jordan that the police department knew or should have known that he also had mental illness. They had encountered him in the past, not for arrests, but just for behavior that, you know, is very indicative of, of some type of mental health crisis or mental health situation. So Jordan was walking his dog. This is, you know, uh, right on New Scotland Avenue, the corner of New Scotland and Madison. And he was suffering from a mental health crisis. And it was just, in my opinion, not not appropriate to approach him the way that he was approached, just assuming that he's doing something wrong. Um, And so Mm -hmm. they shot him in the stomach. Um, There is body camera footage and he was holding a knife of some sort. I don't know, you know, the circumstances around that. I can't speak to those things. I'm not obviously his attorney. I'm not privy to all of the court documents. After the shooting, Mr. Young was in critical condition. He was handcuffed to his hospital bed and ruled a flight risk by the judge, despite being unable to walk and having only had a tracheotomy tube removed days before the hearing. Meanwhile, the Albany police released their body camera footage, which Chief of Police Eric Hawkins said showed the officers reacted appropriately. You know, this was an officer that was under attack. And uh, this was not just under attack, but under a deadly deadly force attack. And um, and the officer, in, in my opinion, took the necessary actions in order to protect himself. Ms. Stroh says the center feels that the most important thing is that Mr. Young has suffered enough. Really, the position that we are advocating for is not, did he do it? Is he guilty? You know, stuff like that. Um, It is the majority of criminal defendants in Albany County, and I would say the whole state, you know, the country, um, are offered some type of plea bargain, especially when they have no criminal history. So I used to work for a public defender's office in Columbia County, and Every single case I saw a plea bargain being offered. So the district attorney for Albany County is, he's not offering a plea bargain. Instead, he's asking Jordan to plead to both of these charges that he's charged with, which are menacing a police officer and attempted aggravated assault upon a police officer, one of which carries a mandatory prison term. So for us, it's the fact that he was shot by the police in the stomach He has severe wounds still and and lasting injuries. He uses a colostomy bag. He will probably, from my understanding, it's unlikely that he will ever have full function of his bowels again. This man has suffered so much. He, and this isn't even, you know, we, we haven't even discussed all the treatment that he received from corrections officers and the sheriff's department not letting him talk to his attorney when he was in hospital. 
he was chained to his hospital bed as if he were going to just like get up and run away, which he's obviously incapable of doing. He last time I knew weighed 80 something pounds. He's extremely frail. He right now can't have one of the surgeries that needs to be performed on him due to the fact that he literally can't put weight on. It's just skin and bone, essentially. What would you like to see happen next? So we want to see the charges dropped. Um, he he suffered enough, right? That's what I, I've always maintained is that he has, I mean, physically suffered significantly. Mentally is still suffering. He can't even go about physically healing without the looming idea that he could go to prison. And how do you go to prison and survive a a three-year sentence, a minimum, when you weigh 81 pounds and you can't even, you know, use your bowels in a correct way? Um, I don't. I and I just cannot understand how somebody can go to sleep at night knowing that they're asking for that disposition for this man. The ultimately that is our our ask is for the charges to be dropped against Jordan. There are certainly bigger things that we would love to see come from this. More community-based alternatives for diverse needs of people with mental health issues, people of color instead of dehumanizing them and making them out to be this villain who was, you know, putting everyone's life in danger. Um, If you see Jordan, if you actually see him or are in the same room with him, he is so frail. Like, you know, he's not a threat. And um, I think that our law enforcement culture here in America, especially in New York, certainly in Albany, we routinely dehumanize people of color and people with mental illness. So when you have both of those things going, like Jordan does, I mean, it's just, you know, there's got to be a better way. And where do things stand now with the case? As of about two weeks ago, Jordan was released from Albany Medical Center, not because he is well, but because they want him home they he has you know nurses coming to visit at the at his home to, until he can put weight on and be strong enough to receive his next surgery right now the next court appearance is kind of just in limbo because he is not well enough to go to court and participate in his own defense but they are they being the court um and you know the opposing parties in this case are anxiously waiting for him to be well enough to come back to court to continue pursuing the charges. So for anybody that wants to get involved, for anyone that wants to stand in solidarity with Jordan, you can sign our petition. You can go to our website, www.cflj.org. You can't miss it. It's the first thing that you see on the website, the picture of Jordan with his family. He is a husband. He is the father of two young children. You can sign the petition. You can write a letter to the district attorney asking him to drop the charges, expressing uh, your outrage regarding the treatment of Jordan. Call the district attorney.
spread the word about Jordan's situation to your friends, your family, your neighbors. Um, the more people that know about Jordan and how unfairly that he's being treated, I think the better for for him. We want to see him alive. That's really it. We want Jordan to live. So we wholeheartedly believe at the center and with the other organizations that we are working with to have this campaign for Jordan that if he goes to prison, he will unfortunately die. He's physically and mentally not strong enough to to live in prison. Um, so, yeah. Justice for Jordan. That is Michelle Stroh, Policy Director for the Center for Law and Justice. Reporting for Hudson Mohawk Magazine, this is Moses Nagel. For background on the story, you can search for the name Jordan Young on our website, and we will, of course, continue to follow the story in future episodes. Blaze? I'm Blaze Bryant. You are listening to Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network. WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy. WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy. WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady. WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany. And streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. And I'm Bria Barthel. If you like what you hear, share the program by telling a friend. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. Now on to our next story. The town of Postonkill has been awarded $3.32 million in state funding to provide safe water to residents after the local water was contaminated with PFOA. Again, Mark Dunley spoke with Post and Kill Town board member Eric Wollenberg. We're joined by Eric Wallaber, who is a, a member of the town board uh, in the town of Post and Kill, happens to be the town that I live in, and actually a former town board member. And over the last year, two years, uh, there's been concerns about some PFOA, forever chemicals, contamination that's been found in some of the water sources, drinking wells uh, close to the uh, Algonquin Middle School. And recently it's been announced that the state has awarded a grant to the uh, town to help um, construct uh, an extended water uh, system for some of the residents. So, so, Eric, can you bring us up to date? What, what, what is going on with this water situation in um, Post and Kill? Sure. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, we were informed late last week that um, New York State is grant, has provided a grant to the town of $3.3 million uh, to be used for a District 2 a water district in Post and Kill. We currently have a, a water district in Post and Kill, but this would be a new district that would encompass the area around the middle school, which is where we were we discovered uh, the forever chemicals back in january of 2021 now i understand about a hundred uh houses would be included within this um water district it's it's a little over a hundred different yeah different houses including the obviously the, the middle school is the, the big one um but it's uh a little over a hundred um potential houses or properties that have houses on them that would be uh impacted and the overall, 
you know, preliminary project that was uh, provided to us was in the range of $5.5 million. Now, that's I, that's high. That that definitely is not what the final price tag will be. Uh, right now, the state um, has paid for, has agreed to, to put in, you know, 3.3, which represents 60% of the budget. Um, we are working uh, at the federal level to find federal dollars um, as well to help because uh, it's still a decent chunk for you know 100 households um, and also one of the things I'm going to be asking the town board is to set aside you know hundred thousand uh, dollars of the covid relief money um, for this project not that a hundred thousand dollars is is going to do a heck of a lot but I think it's important and I think it's a show of uh, of support and a show of unity between the the federal state and local officials now the first water district in the town and actually the water tank i can see looking out my uh, windows right across this uh, street from me i i know that was initially funded through a grant from the obama economic stimulus um program but I, I believe half of that was a grant but half of that you know local residents had to pay has there been any discussion about you know any contribution being required by local residents and and had local residents reacted to the idea that they're going to be put onto a water system right so we had a we had a public uh meeting back in july this year and you know if today if today you know we we had 3.3 of the 5.5 obviously that leaves a shortfall of two uh 2.2 million uh which would then have to be paid for and then that'd be something how does the town go ahead and do that um do we obviously go out and get a bond and then um just start talking about how do we pay that back and what the uh the benefit unit charge would be um and the town as a procedural issue you know the town board can establish district number two um or the town board can put a district number two up for a, a vote of the folks who would be within that district, which is what they did a little bit over a decade ago when they proposed district one, they let the voters decide whether or not they wanted that that service, the voters wanted it. And now we're in a similar situation. The idea being here, uh, even let's say if it's $2 million, we're still actively um, looking for federal dollars. So hopefully we can get some money. We have the support of Senator Schumer, Senator Gillibrand. We had the support of then Congressman, now Lieutenant Governor-elect, or Lieutenant Governor and Governor-elect uh, Delgado. So we're hoping to get some more funding um, to, to bring that number down. And then we can go to the residents and say, hey, this is what it would cost you uh, if we were to put a District 2 in and, and move forward. Now, I, I know in you know other situations where you have a contaminated water supply, such as we saw uh, out in uh, Hoosick Falls a couple of years ago with BFOA, you know, one tries to find out, well, who contaminated the water supply and right. then try to hold them financially responsible for that. Has there been much progress in, in that area? To be honest, state officials seem not that uh, gung-ho about expending a lot of resources trying to figure out where this contamination is actually coming from. Yeah, no, Mark. And, you know, I, I've been very critical of the state's response to this, uh, and I'm going to continue to be. That being said, you know, certainly we appreciate this grant. We appreciate the opportunity to affords our residents, uh, the opportunity that it affords the town to try to address this issue. But fix putting a water district two in 
without finding the source is not helpful because we could we could be in the same spot to five years down the road where um, we find this contamination a quarter mile down the road or a half mile down the road. We have to find the source so that we know who's affected. The state has done very little testing. Uh, we've asked them to look at certain um, locations, certain um, business areas that would be, you know, it would make sense where this might might come from. And the state has not wanted to do that and proves not to want to do that. And we're now coming up in two years. Hmm. And so, you know, appreciative of the money. But the reality is we could go spend five million dollars tomorrow and then find out a year or two down the road that it's literally a quarter mile down the road or half mile down the road. And the state is still, you know, looking, says they're looking for something, you know, while they have a blindfold on. And, and that's the frustration that I have. We have to find the source. We have to know what the plume is. And we have to begin remediation. And the water district is only one part of that. Now, as personally, as a former town board member and as a town resident, I, I am aware that there are two or three sites literally across the street from the uh, school. I, I guess actually been some detection of PFOA at the um, waste transfer station used to be Benson Brothers, sort of Kitty Corner. Some others have yep. said possibly at uh, the Valentia Lumber, but I don't know if anything's been detected there. And there was other some other old industrial site in the area. You know, what is going on with that waste transfer station if they have, in fact, had elevated levels of PFOA? Well, Mark, the, the reality is we now know they have and, and at the transfer station. And when we had this discussion back almost two years ago, State DEC asked the residents, can you guys give us some possible sources? And we gave them several possible sources and they've ignored all but one of them. And one, which is about a mile and a half away. They have not done testing at the transfer station. They said, no, no, the, the business is going to take care of that on their own. And we trust their, their system, their testing. We've had a resident in Post and Kill who's done FOIL information and found that there's elevated levels over there. And yet we still have the DEC sitting there saying, well, we're investigating. No, they dug some wells at the middle school. We all know the middle school is not the source. And then they, you know, they, they, keep, they keep saying, oh, we're looking into it. We're looking into it. They're looking into it without doing any work or digging any wells. And now through, you know, residents' own efforts, we're finding that the transfer station has elevated levels. The DEC knows about this and the DEC still see to this day still refuses to go in there and do their own testing. So what's the timeline if the town, you know, does um, plan to move forward the water district? We're talking about, you know, a vote in a year. You know, how, how quickly can this occur? Well, I think, you know, now that we have this grant, we got I think we need to move pretty quickly. I, we're going to know soon whether or not the federal we get some federal dollars and hopefully we will. Um, I think, number one, we need to put together a plan and, and start moving this forward, either for the town board to make a decision or to allow the voters to make a decision. That can be called and done within 90 days. Um, so I would like to see this done within the first few months of 2023. One of the things I think also is, to, to be quick, is that the proposed water district, while it's it provides a, a service, it, it should be expanded. And if we're going to get into the ground and start putting in a water district, there's opportunities for us to expand it to include uh, significant more houses and make that 100 properties more like 140, 150, because uh, it's probably not something we're not going to go back in and do 
uh, 20 years down the road to go pick up a few more homes. So I've been talking with uh, Eric Wallaber, Post and Town Moore, and this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Our show on Friday had an older interview about PFOAs and Post and Kill. This is a developing story, and this is the most current news on the issue. Mark's previous coverage of PFOA pollution can be found on our website, mediasanctuary.org. Blaze? The Troy, oh, thank you, Brian. The Troy Farmers Market is now indoors. Well, because the produce couldn't survive outside with as cold as it is. Our very own Cena Bazile Hickey stopped by on its opening day in the Troy Atrium to talk with Steve, or I'm sorry, to talk with market manager Steve Riddler and some of the vendors. Hi, I'm Steve Riddler and the market manager. We are inside at the atrium. That's a transition that is always very difficult to do. People like to see all the same vendors, and they're nearly all here. It's just you have to hunt them down and find them. It's a challenge in terms of spacing and where you can put people, but we've got you know the produce vendors front and center this year. We're going to be able to uh, have the prepared food areas back upstairs where they'll be able to spread out and have a dining area, so that's going to be pretty exciting. We're fixing the elevator. And uh, we are inside. Everybody always thinks that uh, you can stay outside for as long as possible. But you know what? November in uh, upstate New York can be a little bit different from this year. And uh, a lot of the produce is not able to be out there. It perishes pretty quickly. So we have to be very cautious about where we're located. And so we have everybody inside and we're spread out, still with lots of room. So it's pretty, sh- it's pretty safe. And we're, we're excited to be in here, right in the middle of downtown Troy. So other than the location change, what are other differences between the summer market and the winter market? Well, I think that one of the big things you see in the summer is that there's so many more people coming. And uh, so the numbers, the attendance drops. But really, the same uh, number of vendors are here. Uh, and, you know, we, so that's the biggest challenge is you know, sort of make, getting people to understand that, you know, you go outside one week, and we're indoors the next week. The attendance may drop quite dramatically, but the same product, the same number of vendors, they still have the same stuff. So really, you just have to sort of come out and really explore and experience the winter market and find out that you can still get all the fresh produce that you want. And then, and then from another standpoint, you know, there's, you know, operational-wise, it's all very different. You know, you've got to load people in. You've got four entrances and almost 100 vendors trying to get in them at the beginning of the day. So for us, the magic happens before you all arrive. And when, when you get here and see what's going on, it's all happened already. You know, we've managed to get them all in and all set up, and no one knows what went on. So there's a lot more that's happening behind the scenes than is obvious for the visitors. Oh, absolutely, yes. I mean, today we were, we were running around unplugging prepared food vendors and plugging them into different sockets. So we, made, we found out which circuits were working and which ones they'd blown and how we could get someone to turn their grill on and you know, what you can do. You have to cook differently inside. You know, you have to do a lot more pre-packaged and pre-prepared food that they come in and heat up. So, you know, there's a lot going on there. And then we have to sort of figure out how to group the vendors so that the customers can really find their way around and get all, get all they need without scratching their heads too much about where's that at? And then obviously one of the biggest challenges that we face is the question, where's the map? And the map comes pretty soon after we do a couple markets because we obviously like try and fine tune things and then the map appears. 
So there probably will be a map next week. It'll be a draft map probably still, but you know, eventually there'll be a map on site as well as on the on the internet. And what should we know about this building? It's been a staple in Troy. You were for one winter over in the Price Chopper. Are there difficulties with these buildings? Do you hope to stay here? Well, the downtown now, we're hoping to stay in the atrium. Um, we are working out with uh, the owners and the city. And uh, it's a very complicated series of parcels here, some of which are being proposed for redevelopment. Timing of that may impact us. You know, we're hoping that we'll still sort of fall in a, on a window of opportunity that'll allow us to still be here next winter. But if we're not, we have a real challenge finding spaces that can you know, hold this many people and this many vendors. There's not that many options. We were fortunate to find the Price Chopper site during COVID. And then we, we had to operate under different capacity limits and different spacing limits, and that worked really well. But they, even that doesn't work for a, a full-blown indoor farmer's market anymore. So there are definite challenges ahead in terms of figuring out where we're going to be. And we're hoping that with you know, some grant money that's been awarded to us and that maybe some additional funding and some fundraising, that we'll be able to create a permanent home here within what happens with the redevelopment and ownership transfers. So beyond just the staple of farmers and fresh vegetables, what else is at the market? Obviously, we have uh, the, the staples that you just talked about, but we have a lot of meat. We have a lot of bakers, different types of bakers. We have gluten-free. We, we're, we're trying to increase our vegan options. We have all the dairy and the cheeses, which is great when you talk about vegan, but yeah. And we have uh, ciders, wine, spirits. And then we have uh, jams and jellies and garlic. And then we have all of the prepared food vendors out there. And you also have music. And I know you've had an artist recently. Yes, we have music. Um, every week we have at least two performers out there. Um, and they play right in the middle of the market from the start to the end. And when we were in the Price Chopper, we had a mural program where we were able to get the artists back into the into the environment where you know no one was really wanting to be out and about. But we opened it up in the evenings and had murals painted all over the Price Chopper. And we're thinking of trying to do the same thing here this year. So look for look for changes to the walls each week. Not yet, but I'm hoping to be able to pull something off on the walls that are going to be demolished. We'll be able to maybe paint those up and have some fun. And then the other thing that we do is that we have uh, local community groups come in and they get to talk about what they do in the community and gives them a real place to put their message out to a lot of people. Thank you so much, Steve. Before I walk around, anything else that we should be looking forward to in this indoor season? Well, I, I'm hoping that, you know, we won't have too much snow and that we'll be able to keep the sidewalks clear and everybody will be having a great time coming down in the winter right through the winter so we look forward to seeing everybody thank you so much all right thank you all right. hello i'm hernan lopez from owner of elias coffee so it's the first day indoors how's the transition been it's great. It's been uh, seamless uh, as far as customers are cons is concerned. There were a lot enough people coming in. A lot of people. I didn't wasn't expecting. I didn't actually. I didn't know what to expect. Whether we're going to get less foot traffic or not. But it's been great. Overall, what I've been hearing is that there is generally less foot traffic indoors. Why do you think that is? Usually, people want to just hang out. A lot of people walk around and just eat in the market. 
and right now the weather is also good so that's why the day was great so do you expect more people to be coming inside as it gets colder i hope so <laughs> especially when you're looking for an activity and it's cold it's kind of nice to be in an indoor place this is the perfect choice to do that uh, you're warm and you're well fed and good drinks it's perfect what do you what gravitates to you towards coffee? I know you're you're quite uh, into the fair trade concept. Yes, um, fair trade, and um, I try to pay try to find a company that will pay more to the farmer uh, to help with sustainability because a lot of farmers don't get paid enough. So I try to look for a company that does that. What makes vending at the market worth your time? It's a lot of fun. I love to interact with the customers and it makes the job exciting and interesting. And if you're busy, it's great for everybody. It's just fun. Thank you so much. Hi, I'm Jem with Baba Duck here at the Troy Farmer's Market. And I'm Peggy with Baba Duck at the Troy's Farmer's Market. Um, so everything is vegan, plant-based and it's Chinese food, all made by Mei Yi, the chef. <laughs> okay, I see some glass noodles here. What kind of sauces come with it? Oh, so this dish is um, the sesame noodles, so it comes with a sesame sauce, a homemade sesame sauce. And then we also have dumplings, and they are drizzled in a homemade chili oil, so you can get the five-spice chili oil that's drizzled on the pumpkin cabbage dumplings, or you can get the chiu chow chili oil, which is very popular right now, and that's drizzled on the green garlic dumplings. And it all comes with a homemade uh, soy sauce. So the soy sauce is infused with ginger and garlic. So it's the first day indoors. What's the big difference between outdoor market and indoor market? the weather and the bees. There's no bugs. We don't have to be sweating like crazy. So I, I like that at least being indoors. So is it easier then for the food vendors? Yeah, I feel, I feel like for me it's nicer, but I also do miss like the aroma and just like being outside and everyone's outside. So it's kind of sad that we're, we're entering into the colder months, but still having the farmer's market is a good place to have people still come outside and like have some type of community. So there are pros and cons with both seasons? Yeah. yeah. I'd say the cons are less people are likely to just come in here and wander in because it's not fully exposed like it is outdoors. Yeah, no, I agree. I feel like um, it's we're kind of hidden in here, so it's harder for people to like see that we're in here, but hopefully more people will hear about it and come out. Thank you, and that's Baba Duck, but vegan Chinese kitchen. Yes, correct. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Have a good one. <laughs> the Troy Farmer's Market will be in the Troy Atrium on Saturdays, 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. For more information, their website is troymarket.org, and we're going to be try to return to interview more vendors at the atrium. Now we go from the Farmer's Market to, well, a lot of weather joining us is retired meteorologist Hugh Johnson. Hey, Hugh, hope you had a good week. Yeah, then how about yourself, please? I cannot complain. 
uh, which I will try not to do as we talk about uh, the weather that we have on the horizon. But let's let's start warm first. I'll start complaining. Well, I'll complain. <laughs> okay, good. Misery loves company, Hugh. So, uh, let, let so let's tee this up. We could get snow Tuesday into Wednesday. That's correct. Uh, it, unfortunately, or if you like snow, fortunately, it looks like our first accumulating snow is, is looking like a, almost a lock now. We got a storm passing towards south. The good thing it's moving quickly. There's actually two storms that are going to kind of merge into one stronger storm. It's very progressive, so it's not going to stick around, but looks like a shot of snow starting uh, evening about this time tomorrow, maybe. The first flakes will be falling, and then we'll, uh, we'll get a quick burst of several inches of snow switching over to freezing rain, sleet, uh, and then probably just going to rain later on Wednesday. Could be a real dicey uh, morning drive on Wednesday morning, so plan for extra time to, to get about. I'm a buffalo gal, so I like snow, but freezing rain is my absolute worst. Shouldn't uh, be an extended period of it, thank goodness. It should not last too long, the freezing rain. Oh. I mean, how how fitting because there are voter accessible voter machine demonstrations. One of them happening Wednesday. Mother Nature's getting in the way of me getting to it. Ugh. There's supposed to be a climate march too, and I I I can't go. I got something else going on, and I'm not even 100. But I heard there was some kind of a climate march. So, now good luck with that. It could be pretty miserable. I guess. Yeah, get could... out the rain boots. <laughs> That's all I gotta yep. say. I guess yeah. rain and snow and freezing rain is better than hurricanes. How did Florida do with Hurricane Nicole? Well, actually, I'll be honest with you. I think it did a little worse than I thought it would do. I, I think, you know, it depends on who you talk to. But it was a minimal Category 1 hurricane, but it was very large, uh, Bria. And it had it came with the uh, during the uh, uh, high tide, the monthly high tide with the moon. The moon was nearly full. So it produced a lot of, of, of incredible beach erosion south of um, St. Augustine. I biked down that area. My wife and I drove down to Ormond Beach and, and places like that, Daytona. And apparently those places got pummeled. Uh, it, it, was a, it was a storm surge, not like Ian, but still surprisingly high. And the area just is so vulnerable. A lot of damage is uh, probably going to be another billion-dollar disaster when the, the total damage price tag is put on it. Uh, there was over $480 million in the, the county that uh, Daytona Beach is, uh, I think it's uh, Felicia County alone. So bad news there. Oh, five people died. That's not good, but it wasn't a huge number. There were power outages. There was regular flooding from rain, but the storm surge, once again, probably the worst part of that storm. So we've had lots of really bad hurricanes. Is there any prediction for if they're going to keep coming? Well, if you, if you go at climate change, what's going to happen is you may not have the number, you know, the numbers won't go up, but the, the strength of them will. And you, the problem is you have a very warm Atlantic. The Atlantic Ocean continues to, most, about 80% of the basin continues to run well above normal. Of course, the good news is there are no uh, more, there's no tropical activity expected right now in the next 48 hours. And we are at the time of year where it should be winding down. But this was the first direct hit from a hurricane in November in Florida since 1985. So that was a little unusual in itself. Wow. Hugh Johnson with me, Blaze Bryant, and Bria Barthel here on Hudson Mohawk Magazine. 
speaking of things that are unusual, it feels like the weather changes that we had. We were really warm a week ago, and now, sitting here, having this conversation with you, I'm bundled up. Yeah, yeah tonight's going to be our coldest night. We're going to get down to near 20 tonight. That's right. 2-0 is 34 at my house now. So if you have anything outside, it's done. I mean, there's no way it's going to survive that. So very, very cold tonight. Temperatures may not even make 40 tomorrow, but we won't have any wind. And then, of course, the snow, as we discussed, will come in probably after the um, evening drive. Uh, so, yeah, we're definitely – and, it, you know, we go back. It was, we hit a record high on Saturday morning at 3 a.m. It was 71 degrees, and that broke a record from 1909 of 68, I believe. So that's pretty weird itself. And we had that one day a few days before that, where, about a week before that, where we had a, a mean temperature of 69.5, which was our warmest uh, November day ever. We had the low of 67, the high of 73, I believe. So just incredible stuff. But that warm weather is history. We're going to be cold now. We're going to stay cold for the next We're up to about Thanksgiving. It looks like temperatures will be below normal and then maybe moderating as we get towards Thanksgiving itself. So this isn't a cold snap for a few days. You see this is just settling in and getting us ready for worse, huh? Yeah, for at least a, a week or so. Yeah, I'm afraid so. Yeah, well, I mean, do you think it's going to be so cold where Charlie Brown can play football or will that get in the way? What do you think? Well, I mean, I think, like I said, for Thanksgiving, it's going to be, um, I, I, we might actually have rain on Thanksgiving, but it's still too far out. There's still things that could change on that, but it uh, looks like temperatures may be back in the forties, but you know, this snow, we're going to get several inches and it will go to rain, but you know, the snow might actually, we might see uh, some snow in the grass for a while because it's, you know, with the colder temperatures, it won't melt fast. The sun angle is pretty darn low. It's only four degrees off its winter solstice low. So it, you can see the sun, the shadows in the middle of the day even. You know, we're just getting that time of year. But, uh, yeah, take a look at the – I do have an um, I, I indicator for what could be happening this winter. Um, I, I, don't, I don't have a whole lot of time, but – and we can discuss Give us this. two in, minutes in on that so we can break down the, the storm and okay. the forecast. Yep. Okay. Yep. All right, so – this is going to, by the way, this will be the third consecutive winter with the La Nina, and that hasn't happened since the winter of 1975-76. So what does that mean? Well, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be an especially severe winter, but I think it's weakening. The La Nina is weakening. It may actually end by the end of winter, go to what we call La Nada. But we look at, we look at some analogs and, and other, you can't just look at just the um, ENSO. you got to look at the whole ocean currents and everything else going on. But what, and I give Steve LaPointe credit for this because he actually did this uh, on, on Channel 6. But basically, he did the, 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 the dirty work. But if you look at all the indices, it looks like the analog points that will probably have a slightly milder than normal winter, but it might be cold in the beginning of the winter. And we're already seeing that in, into December, maybe even January, and then maybe not so cold in February. With uh, And because of the warm Atlantic, we might get a couple of, explosive nor'easters well hopefully this won't be one of them but something to watch out so my thinking is we might end up with a little bit above normal snowfall even if we get a little bit above normal temperatures so could be kind of an active winter back and forth between cold snaps and some mild spells i don't think we're going to get locked into any particularly cold or warm pattern i think it's going to be kind of changeable 
So and I okay. think I think December to January could be cold like last year again. Well, December wasn't cold last year, but January was. So maybe a little yeah. earlier. Maybe the cold comes in a little earlier. We'll see. Okay, forecast time, Hugh. Okay, again, uh, the snow tomorrow, late, late tomorrow, going to a mix on Wednesday, and then it looks cold but relatively dry through the weekend. One one kink to the south. As long as it stays south, we're, we're going to stay dry right into the beginning of Thanksgiving week, and then we might see a, a bit of a warm-up and, and some precipitation as we head towards Turkey Day. So it looks like good travel weather right now, potentially. Uh, so that's good. But the temperatures continuing to run below normal. I'm going to hold on to those two words, warm up, and, and yeah. keep well, my hopes we'll up. We'll call it moderating. Yeah, keep, I, I, I'm, I'm hoping warm up again. I want to get out on the bike a couple more times. But I broke my annual record, so I guess it's, it's all good. But yeah, I, I don't. I'm not ready for winter yet. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not either. Uh, Hugh Johnson, retired meteorologist with the National Weather or for the National Weather Service. Hugh, I believe we are off uh, next week for the Thanksgiving holiday. So okay. have a. Am I, uh, Bria and Cena? You're in the studio. Am I correct on that? Yeah, we're going to be missing I think you, I saw Hugh. Something, yeah. Well we'll, yeah, yeah, well, we'll be talking again. Yep, we'll have a great Thanksgiving, everyone. And uh, you as well. And uh, you can get anything you want at Alice's Restaurant. Just remember that. So <laughs> That's true. Uh, that is a it for... pecan pie. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, be well. Have a great holiday, Hugh. We'll catch up with you in a couple of you weeks. Too. Hugh Johnson, right, retired meteorologist with the National Weather Service. Thank you very much, Hugh. And that is a wrap. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Blaze Bryant. And I'm Bria Barthel. Our engineer is the incredible Sina Bazila Hickey. Other folks helping with the show are uh, Mark Dunley, Moses Nagel, and of course, my great co-host, Blaze Bryant. So this program covers stories of social and environmental justice produced by the community, for the community, and is supported by independent donations. If you value independent media, consider a gift of a monthly donation as a sanctuary sustainer. You can find information on how to do that by going to mediasanctuary.org. And we want to hear from you. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Media Sanctuary. Send us an email, hmm at mediasanctuary.org as well. Tune in. Weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at our website, mediasanctuary.org, where you can also find full shows and individual stories also available wherever you get your podcast. We appreciate we appreciate you listening. Bria and I will be back in two weeks. Until then, listen to all the other great producers and happy Thanksgiving here on Hudson Mohawk Magazine. 